rivers of living water just ever flowing from our hearts, from our innermost beings. We just read those words of Jesus. Does that, does that describe your life this morning? Maybe you, maybe you say there's, there's a trickle of living water flowing in my life, but rivers, plural, not really. Um, or maybe you would say, my, my heart is dry. Uh, I can remember a time when living waters flowed, but it seems as if it's dried up. I'm in a time of drought. I, I don't know. I don't know what your experience is today. We have this invitation of Jesus, this promise of Jesus, of flowing abundant rivers of living water. And then there's our present experience where we live and how we look at our own lives. And, and, and most of us would say that it would be a stretch to describe our lives in the way that Jesus does here and gives this promise here in John 7. I've been praying for you I've been praying for my own self this week, and I confess it has been a battle. I've been praying for our church that the that the this picture in John seven thirty seven and thirty eight would become more and more of a reality here. Um, this would define and represent and be a, a right description of our lives, of your life, of my life, and. And I just ask that you pray along for yourself and for this church in that way. We In staff meeting this week, we read Psalm 85. And it was just kind of in reading Psalm 85, which um, the crux of, of that past that psalm is in verse 6. Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? And so this is a psalm about revival. And you have all of these these. Um, things that revival produces in, in God's grace is God does that quickening work among His people. There's effects on the land for Israel. There's, there's obedience and there's all of these good benefits that come from revival. But the first and the main thing that that reviving work of God produces is joy in God. It's love for Him. Delight in the Lord. And I... I, again, have been praying for my own heart, and I, I desperately need it, and I have been praying for a church, God, will you revive us, Lord, that we might rejoice in you in ways we never even had before. Well, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and we're going to finish chapter 7, God willing, and so we're, we're going to be reading uh, more of the text, and and, and what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to just read through verses 20, from 25 to 52 this morning. I'm going to stop along the way, make some comments, and then we're going to come back and our focus will be on verses 37 to 39. And I'll explain more about that as we go along. But as we read the remainder of this chapter in John 7, I want you to note the reactions of the people to Jesus. We, we saw this already last week that... And we said this last week, that the, the question of Jesus' identity always brings division. It always has, it, it always will, in our own day as well. But then we've seen the reaction of the religious leaders. We saw this last week. They, they did not believe Jesus. They mocked Jesus. They, they were angry at Him. We saw the reaction of the crowd that was mostly made up of pilgrims. And, and they're skeptical. They're, they're, they accuse Jesus of being filled with demons. And this morning, 
We're, we're going to see next the, the reaction of the citizens from Jerusalem. So these are the hometown residents. They live in Jerusalem. This is, this is, this is their town. They have, their, they have pride in their identity as Jerusalemites. They're not those outsiders, pilgrims, tourists. No, this is their place. They live in the headquarters of Judaism. They have a better pulse on religious life and the religious leaders of Israel than anybody else in the land, any other Jews. These are the citizens of Jerusalem. And, and, and so they, we have this unique perspective of them and, and, and what they are, they're just dumbfounded that nobody has put a stop to Jesus. They, they're, that the establishment hasn't just nixed this whole Jesus talk, this Jesus teaching, all his audacious claims about himself, all, all of his sharp and pointed accusations against Israel's leaders and the nation, those who follow them, their hypocrisy, Jesus said, they're hypocrites, they, they claim to be guardians of the law, but they themselves don't keep it. So all that Jesus said, they... They're, they're, yeah, yeah, sure, the religious leaders, they got all red in the face, they get angry, and they, they hurl some insults and ridicule at Jesus, but that's it. They don't do anything, they don't back it up, they don't, they don't arrest him, they don't challenge him, really. They just allow him to keep going on with his radical teaching. So look, verse 25, this is where we pick it up. John 7, verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. He's, he's holding nothing back. He's not softening his words and playing to the crowd. He just says whatever he wants to say. And, and they say nothing to him. Verse 26. I thought they were looking for Jesus. I thought that they wanted to arrest him. I thought they wanted to imprison him and kill him even. Shut him up at least. And here he's right in the temple. Broad daylight. And... What in the world's going on? He's just, Jesus teed the ball up for his opponents. All they have to do is just take him. He's there. He's made it easy. And, and they say nothing. They do nothing to stop him. And so this possibility kind of dances across their minds. Verse, into verse 26. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Is it possible that our religious leaders are actually buying into Jesus' claims? That he is who he says he is. Surely not. They, the, the way they ask the question, it expects a negative answer. So it's not, but there's this, this, the door of doubt is just left slightly ajar. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So as we'll see in this chapter, there were two schools of thought and thinking about the, the origins of the promised Messiah. There were those that said, no one will know where he comes from. And then there were those who said, well, he, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. We'll see this in verses 41 and 42. And so either way though, everybody knew that Jesus could not be the Messiah because they knew that he was from Nazareth in, in Galilee. They know his hometown. They know his mom and dad. He, he, he's, he's from Nazareth. We know where he's from. This can't be... Him. So the, the, if you just think of like a debate tournament, the major premise is, is the Messiah, nobody's going to know where the Messiah comes from. The minor premise, we know where he comes from. So the conclusion, he can't be the Messiah. And as we'll see, the, 
their major and minor premises are wrong, so their conclusion is wrong about Jesus. And so, uh, so verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed. That, it's, it's not, it's not, that, that doesn't really carry the weight of this word. It's he cried out, cried out loudly. He proclaimed as he, he cried out as he taught in the temple. You know me? <laughs> and you know where I come from? And now, I don't know how your translation is. There are different of you have different translations of this. And some translate this as a question and some translate this as an exclamation. And either way, the meaning is the same. They're, 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 they're challenging, or what Jesus is doing is he's challenging their so-called knowledge of his origins, of him and where he came from. So Jesus goes on, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. He is, he is rubbing some salt and some very open wounds here. I mean, just think, Jesus has already said to these people that, that they prided themselves on two things, law-keeping and God-knowing. And what has Jesus said? You don't keep the law. Now he says, you don't even know God. And so, he's just going after them right where it stings the most. They don't really know Him. Why don't they know Him? Because they reject His Son. The One He sent. The most religious, the most privileged, the most well-taught people in all the world. The ones who have the very oracles of God. They do not know God. And those, and this is application for us here, is just we see this. Those who reject Jesus reject God. They don't know Him. If you, if you reject Jesus as God's Son, as the Messiah, as your only hope, as, as, as the, the, then you cannot truly know God. No matter what your religion is, no matter what you claim to have in terms of relationship with God, you, you cannot truly know God if you don't. Reject or if you don't receive his son. Let me just give you some other verses in John that that prove this. John five twenty three. We've already seen some of these. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. John five verse forty two and forty three. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. John six forty five. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. John 8:19 we'll see this next time you know neither me nor my father if you knew me you would know my father also and in verse 42 of John 8 if god were your father you would love me all all religions of the world even today they claim to know god but how how can you know how can you test if that's a true conviction a true statement what do you do? You present them with Jesus Christ. Present them to Christ, the Son of God, crucified and risen as, uh, for sinners, as the only hope for the world. And what they do with Jesus, is, is to, it tells you what they, whether or not they truly know God, whether they honor God, whether they love God, whether they have God as their Father. If they will not have the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, they do not truly know God. I just say, what does that mean for us? That, that should not make us proud people, boastful, 
or rude people. It should make us thankful and brokenhearted people. Thankful that, that God in His grace has given us exposure to this gospel of Jesus Christ so that we can know Him. Thankful that God has drawn us to Himself for we know that no one comes to Christ unless the Father draws Him. And brokenhearted for those that don't yet know Christ and have rejected Him. Those who are without Him, even though they may be very religious, they reject Jesus Christ and therefore they do not know God. And just all the more reason to proclaim the Gospel and live our lives to see Christ um, exalted among the nations. And so, here, Jesus says, you don't know God because you've rejected the One whom He has sent. Then He goes on, verse 29, I know Him, for I come from Him, and He sent me. Don't you know that's going to go over well? <laughs> and it doesn't. Verse 30, this is, see the text says, so, or this is why they were seeking to arrest Him. But, no one laid a hand on Him. Why, why don't they touch Him? Why don't they take Him? Why don't they shut Him up? Because... They're afraid of some riot from the pro-Jesus pilgrims, some of the pro-Jesus pilgrims there in the city. Possibly. But there's a deeper reason. You see it at the end of verse 30. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So Jesus is surrounded by danger on all sides. You, you have the, the, the angry Jerusalemites. You have the violent and hate-filled leaders of the nation. That, are, that, that want to get him, want to kill him, the text says. But he's perfectly safe. He is, he is not in any danger whatsoever because it's not the will of God for him to die yet. Angry, violent, hate-filled people cannot interfere with the plans of Almighty God. That is a great word and encouragement to us. We need to remember that. That's still true today. God's plans are not thwarted by those who hate Him. This is not His hour. But not everyone hates Jesus. Not everyone wants Him arrested. Verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in Him. Many believed. Was, what, now, was this true saving faith? Probably, but it's not. We can't know for certain from the context here. Maybe they saw Jesus' signs. Maybe they heard Jesus' teachings and truly did put their trust in Christ alone. It might be more of the belief that his brothers had, which was not true belief, as we saw. They, they just believe his power to do miracles because you see the end of verse 31. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? But either way... The, the Pharisees don't like what's happening here. They don't like the more favorable perception that Jesus is getting. They catch wind of this kind of positive response that people are starting to have towards Jesus. Verse 32. And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about Him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to, arre- to arrest Him. So as they see it, things are getting out of hand. That... that this imposter is now being considered by many to be the Messiah. And intervention is necessary, and it's necessary now. So they move in to arrest Jesus. Well, Jesus knows all this is happening. He's not caught unaware by this, but he's not shaken either. 
He's, he's in charge. They're not in charge. Jesus is in charge. He has all authority. And so he's calm and he, and with authority says verse 33, then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who, who, who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. I mean, notice the power and authority of Jesus' words there. What is he saying? You can try to arrest me, but I choose where I go, when I go, and who can follow me. You, you can't take me early. You, you won't keep me here till any longer than when I decide to leave. I go, I come at my own will. You can't do anything to stop me. Your plans against me are futile. I have come to do my Father's will, not your will. And it will be done exactly on His time, exactly in the way that He has planned it. And they, and yet they completely miss what Jesus says here. Look at verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and, and, and teach the Greeks the dispersion of those Jews that were scattered among the of the Gentiles among the Greeks and other heathen peoples. What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am you cannot come? I mean, they're clueless. They, 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 they take Jesus' words in the most crassly literal way here and, and they're mocking him even as he says this. And so this is the scene. And, and so the drama is escalating here. The, the opposition is intensifying and it's at this climax that Jesus speaks these words that we're going to focus on in a moment. You have these hostile crowds, you have the Pharisees, you have the priests, you have these arresting officers there. And, and Jesus just says something that's just incredible. And, and we'll come back and look at these again in more detail, but let's just read them again. And So just imagine this moment. Verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. There's that word again. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this comment. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now notice, again, as we go on, so this is, we'll come back to that, but notice how the people respond. You have the response of the crowds here. They give mixed reviews of Jesus. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. This is the prophet, the Deuteronomy 18 prophet, the, the, the authoritative the, the only authoritative prophet who would exceed all other prophets, who would come though like Moses, the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. He's, he's, he's more than the prophet, he's, he's the Messiah, which in reality, those are the same people. The prophet of Deuteronomy 18 is the Messiah. But they, they're seeing these parts of Jesus, but they still underestimate Him. And, un, and yet some said, is, this, is, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So some say He's the prophet. Some say He's the Messiah. Though maybe not in the 
sense of he's the one who will come and save his people from his sins, maybe more than that political, military deliverer. And then some say he's a fraud. He's a fake, a deceiver. He can't be the Christ because the Christ will come from Bethlehem. And, and, and so they think he's this imposter from Galilee. And it's, and it's interesting, nobody even asked Jesus where he's born. That, that doesn't seem to come up. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Just notice as we read through this section here, you, you have this repeated over and over. Some of them, some said, some of them did this, some of them thought this, others said this, others did this, others wanted this. Just, there's no unified response from the people. Again, we said this last week. Jesus, he always brings division. He came to bring a sword. And so, the, 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 and, and, and so then you have the leaders. You see, they see him as this dangerous deceiver. Verse, verse 45 and 46. So the officers who were sent back to, sent out to arrest Jesus in verse 32, they come back and they come back empty handed. They have no prisoner. So verse 45, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin who's gathered, and, he, and, they, and they said to them, why did you not bring him? Where is he? What happened? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. <laughs> they, they couldn't bring themselves to arrest him because they never heard anyone speak like this. They're stunned after hearing Jesus say what he says, probably what he says there in verses 37, 38. They never heard anyone talk like this. The Pharisees are not too pleased with these officers and they're not too impressed by them. And so... They're, they're mad. Pharisees answered, verse 47, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in Him? Like the, he's, They're speaking to these subordinates and saying, you, You're just a bunch of simpletons. We're the pros. We're the experts. We're the ones who have the Scriptures. We, we know the stuff. Just trust us. But the crowd, verse 49, this bunch of buffoons that does not know the law is accursed. This crowd, these simpletons, literally just the, the people of the soil, the riffraff, hey, the Pharisees, they've studied the law, and, and this, is, this is why they're wise and righteous. This is how they thought of themselves. And these crowds, they're unlearned, they're ignorant, therefore they're, they're wicked, they're accursed. And then we have this twist at the end of John 7. We, we have opposition arising within the, own, within the camp of the religious leaders. Nicodemus enters the story again. And isn't this interesting? <laughs> Verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him, to Jesus before, back in John 3 at night, had questions for Jesus. And who was one of them? He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So the Pharisees think they're unified in their opposition to Jesus. That's how they communicate this to, the, to these officers. And they're really not, though. Um, and there's Nicodemus. And notice how he addresses these religious leaders. He, they've just denounced the crowds, the rabble, for their ignorance of the law, but here he's exposing their own ignorance. And it's more than ignorance, really. It's an unwillingness to obey the law. They knew it. 
But here they are willing to just set aside justice and the due process and they're ready to just take Jesus out. And Nicodemus calls them on it. And he's cautious still here. I don't think Nicodemus is yet trusted in Christ, but he's, he's still searching. He's investigating. He's curious. And all he does here is ask a question. Well, the Pharisees don't like this. They just wish Nicodemus would keep his yapper shut. And they're not happy with him. Verse 52, finally. They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Which isn't true. There were, there were prophets that came from Galilee. But, but they don't have an answer for Nicodemus. They, they, they're not, but they're not going to admit that they're wrong. And so they just accuse Nicodemus of being ignorant. Calling in names, basically. But they make a mistake. In their anger and their jealousy, they, they make a mistake. And what they do is they call Nicodemus to search out the Scriptures. And we know later that that's exactly what he does. And he eventually comes to believe that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's saved. But let's, let's back up. I That's a lot. That's a lot for people that are just trying to adjust from this time zone. But let's back up. Verse 37, 39. That's where we're going to spend the few minutes we have left here. Where this the very pinnacle of this passage. Right in the midst of all this opposition, all this commotion of this scene in this festival time. We have Jesus making this appeal to the crowds. This is a very dramatic moment. I told you there was drama in John 7. It's not as obvious at first as you read through the chapter, but it's there. And you, and, and you cannot read verses 37 to 38 without, without enthusiasm, without excitement, without emotion and passion. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, again, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So we first just I think that these words will have more an impact on us if we really get the context. We talked a little bit about this last week. What's the context of this appeal that Jesus makes? There's a historical context, a broad, a broad historical context, and then there's the context of this immediate ceremonial context. So historical context, we talked about this last week. This is taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booze, which was this week-long feast for the Jews. All the people, all the men of Israel flooded into Jerusalem for this week-long festival, early October. And so it was a celebration of God's faithfulness and in, in light of the harvest, the recent harvest. And so people would bring samples of their harvest, bring grain, bring produce, and they would bring this to offer this to God as thanks to God for His faithfulness. And so the way the feast was carried out, we talked about this last week again, that people set up these temporary shelters, these tabernacles or booths throughout the city. And even those that lived in Jerusalem, they would camp out for the week, for the whole week, and, and live in these tents reminding them of of wilderness life that their ancestors went through for those 40 years and how God provided for and protected and led His people in that most difficult of environments in the wilderness. And so this is, this is what's going on. So that's the broad context. Then the more immediate context. There's something special that happens on the last day or the great day of the Feast of Booths. This week-long 
of festivities, it culminates in this procession, this big procession. You have the priests leading the way, you have the crowds following, and they go out of the temple to the pool of Siloam. And so there's, there's one priest who has this golden pitcher and he's kind of leading the way of this procession as people are waving palm branches as they go out to this pool and the priest dips this pitcher into this, into this fountain, this pool of water and he, he fills it up and then they march back into the temple through the water gate and as they enter the gate, trumpets blast. So it's this festive time. People are shouting thanks to God, praise to God for His faithfulness. And so, it, but it continues. The, the priest walks in succession around the altar seven times. It's like the going around the wall of Jericho. So seven times, this is how it was prescribed. And, and on the sixth time around, there was another priest who joined him with, with wine. And then they would, together, they would, they would go up the ramp to the altar, taking this pitcher, this golden pitcher full of water, and he would raise it up. And as he raised it up, there would be this pause, and the crowd would shout, raise it higher, raise it higher. And so he would reach as high as he possibly could above this altar. And then he would pour the water out on the altar and let it flow over the altar. I mean, this was, to see this was like the pinnacle for for Jews in that day. This was a, a, a wonderful scene to behold and something they would talk about throughout their lives was seeing this moment. It was huge. And so it's in that context, this dramatic moment perhaps, that Jesus stands up. He's been sitting and teaching, but He stands up and He cries out loudly. As this is going on, as this water is being poured, He speaks and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Just picture that scene. A few things about Jesus' invite here. Uh, just, just take note of these. If you're taking notes, this is where you can begin to take notes. I'm sorry. I know this has been more of a running commentary through the text. Just a few things to note about this. is One thing. Well, first, you cannot make Jesus' invitation here too broad, too inclusive. And I don't mean, that's not a warning, that's a, that's a challenge. I dare you to try to make it more inclusive than Jesus does. He says, if anyone comes to me, if anyone thirsts, and this is not extended to close friends and family, this is, this is an invitation that's open to the public, if anyone it's including his enemies. Anyone within the sound of his voice, anyone with the sound of mine, this invitation goes on and on and on. Anyone, come, drink. Any Pharisee, any chief priest, any arresting officer, anyone who is offended by what I said, skeptical about what I said, anyone who hates what I said, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's wide open. The gift of living water is available to all people. It's free to all. If you feel unworthy today, if you're here and you haven't tasted this living water, haven't believed in Christ, just let this word, anyone, just settle on your heart today. It is, it is wide open for you. If, if your zeal for evangelism, brothers and sisters, is beginning to wane and grow cold, just meditate on that word. Anyone. God, 
God is not restrictive. It is wide open invitation. Anyone who thirsts, he can come and drink. So it's, so it's completely inclusive. Second observation about this invite. There's only one thing you and others need to come with. And it's thirst. It's thirst. Anyone, if anyone thirsts. I, I, I do not know what it is like to live without water for days on end. I can remember, you know, times being very thirsty. But that's just because of stupidity, not being prepared. I remember going on a hike in Big Bend National Park when I was in high school. We had taken a mission trip out to West Texas, and and we went out there for the day, and you know, we just didn't know what we were doing. This was before bottled water, too. I mean, you just kind of went from a water fountain to water fountain, which, again, we're so privileged to even have those. But um, And so... But we went out, and it was dry and hot and sunny, and it was higher elevation than any. We didn't realize that we didn't think of it being higher elevation, and so we go as far as we can until we just get tired, and then we turn around, and we got no water, we got nothing. I mean, we were, that's the most thirsty I've ever been, and, and most gl- happy I was to see a church bus that had some water on it. Um, but, but it's that physical experience of thirst that that Jesus uses to appeal to the crowds here about spiritual neediness. Because when your body is without, without water, it gets thirsty. When, and what he's saying is when your soul is without God, it gets thirsty. Your body was made to live on water. Your soul was made to live on God. That's, that's the idea here. So his, his invitation is to all, to all whose souls are thirsty. This is a quote from Don Whitney talks, talking about spiritual thirst. He says, The natural, the unconverted man or woman has an empty soul. Devoid of God, he is constantly in pursuit of that which will fill his emptiness. The range of his mad scramble may include money, sex, power, houses, lands, sports, hobbies, entertainment, transcendence, significance, education, on and on and on. But as Augustine attested, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Always searching and never resting, the empty soul turns from one pursuit to another, unable to find anything that will help fill the God-shaped vacuum in his heart. So the the only thing that we need to come to Jesus and drink is, is thirst. We need to feel our need. We sing a song sometimes, Come Ye Sinners. It's an old hymn. But one of the lines in there is, All the fitness God requires of us is to feel our need for Him. That's all He asks. Feel your thirst. Feel your need for Him. He says, If anyone thirsts. Third thing about this invite is that it's simple. So simple. Don't, Don't make this overly complicated. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he says, whoever believes in me have these living waters, rivers of living waters flowing out of him, out of his heart. So this is drinking is the same thing as believing. That's what I want you to see. They're, they're one and the same in this passage. It reminds us of John 4, the woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus says, if you would ask for it, I would give you living water that would result in eternal life for, for you. And so this, this is it. It's drink. Believe, receive this gift of living water. 
That's, that's it. There's no thought of meriting, no thought of earning, no thought of working for it, attaining it, and stri- reaching for it, and striving for it. It's just drink. If, if you're thirsty, drink. Notice it's also, it's Jesus that we drink. It's not that Jesus has, He has something to offer to us. It's outside of Him, and so we come to Jesus, and He has what our souls need. No, He is what our souls need. It's come to me, drink of me. It's like Jesus says, I am the living bread. If anyone is hungry, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life, so eat. He's the living water, so drink. It's come to Jesus. He doesn't offer to us some new morality. Some, he doesn't offer us to some new religion or some new lifestyle. He offers us Himself. Be satisfied in Him and only Him. Fourth, the, the first drink you take when you, when you realize you're thirsty and you come to Jesus and you drink, that first drink you taste and take opens the floodgates of life for your soul. It's because the one who believes in Christ, the one who drinks of Him, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Literally, out of his belly, out of your bowels, that innermost part of your being is the idea of this word. Heart, soul, spirit, call it what you want. Just out of the, 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 your innards, out of there, the core of your being, will just flow rivers of living water. Not a, not a little sip of water, not a trickle, but this spring, this fountain, rivers, plural. You get Jesus. The great river maker is in you. And so, so these rivers of water flow out of your heart because Jesus is there. Joy, satisfaction, power, real, abundant life. That's, that's what you have when you drink. Living waters produce life, vibrancy, vitality, real life in God. Jesus is going to say in a few chapters, I, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. Just abundantly describe your life in God. This is what Jesus offers to us, what He's promised to give us to those who drink. It's available to you and to me, to those who thirst and who drink of Him. Now, I, I'm not going to linger here, uh, just for the sake of time. There, Jesus says that the Scriptures say this. The scripture has said, um, those who believe out of their hearts will flow these rivers of living water. What passage does Jesus have in mind? I mean, there are several possibilities. I think, I think it's more of a general statement of summing up what the Old Testament teaches about this is how God is. He's the God who gives living water. And, and so there are multiple passages. Exodus 17, the water from the rock. And Psalm 78, 15, which is basically a commentary on Exodus 17. Isaiah 58, 11, he, there he says, you, you shall be like a water garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Jeremiah 2, 13. Let me, I'm going to read this passage. My, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. The fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. And Jesus says to the crowds, He says to us today, That's me. 
I am the fountain of living waters. This is what the Scriptures were talking about. It's fulfilled in me. And you, like Israel, you, 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 you're, you're trying to make cisterns to satisfy this deep thirst of your soul. But they're broken. They hold no water. It's, it's futile. But come to me. Drink of me. I, I, I'm the fountain of living waters. Waters, living waters flow like rivers out of your soul. This is what Jesus offers. Last thing is that the rivers of living water are made possible by the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, there's this explanatory comment from John. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's very helpful. This is a reference to Pentecost. And so the, the Holy, this is where the Holy Spirit first indwelt believers in terms of that indwelling presence with His people. It was promised by the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit has existed from eternity past. He's, he's been present. He's active in the world from the beginning. But at Pentecost, it brought this change in how He's present. He's now with us in a unique way in dwelling as people. And so God, in the person of the Spirit, takes up residence in the heart and the innermost being, a part of our beings for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And that's it. That, how do you receive the Spirit like that? What do you have to do? You don't have to do anything. You believe. You drink. And all those who believe receive the Spirit the moment we believe. And in full measure. And so the Spirit... The Spirit as, as Pat was alluding to earlier, the Spirit couldn't be experienced like this before until Jesus died for sins, was, was buried, was raised, ascended to the Father and to glory. And so this is why Jesus says, we'll say in John sixteen seven, it is better for me that I go. It's better. We say, we think, as Pat was saying, that we think it's better to have lived with Jesus, to walk with Him, to have spent time with Him, to, eat meals with, to have eaten meals with Him and to have that time. And, 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 and Jesus says, no, it's not. It's better that I go because there's a helper coming. And He will be with you always. When the disciples had trouble, they had, what they had, the first response, we've got to find Jesus, we've got we to get to Him, and they're on the boat, Jesus got to come to them. That's the way they're helped. But when Jesus ascends, Spirit's always present. He's always with us, Jesus says. And so, I, I, I just say, because God's Spirit is continually present because he's given to those who have believed we have the opportunity now to have this consistent to know this consistent joy of having rivers of living water flowing out of us this ought to be our experience never minimize the the role of the person and work of the holy spirit in your life and in the church i i, I know it's kind of common for preachers and teachers in in our segment of the church and evangelical Christianity to to talk more about what the, who the Spirit's not and how He doesn't work than it is to emphasize who He is and how He is working. I would just say to you that the, the Christian life is life lived in the Holy Spirit. So we we can't overemphasize the presence and the power of the Spirit at work in. Our lives. Well, the question that we started with is, and we'll come back to, is: is how, how are, how is your soul? 
Are you thirsty? There's, there's different kinds of thirst, soul thirst. There's the thirst of the empty soul, and that's what Jesus is talking about here. If you've tried to find satisfaction in other places, and other things, and other people, and other experiences, and you're looking to satisfy some thirst in your empty soul, then, then the appeal to you is to look to Jesus. This is what He's offering. This is what He's inviting you to. To come to Me, drink. You'd be satisfied in Him. That's God's invitation to you. That's not just my invitation, that's God's. But there's also the thirst of the dry soul. Maybe you've tasted of this living water, you've experienced the salvation, this life that God gives through Jesus Christ, and you've believed, you've come to Jesus, you've drank, drank from Him, <coughs> and yet your soul is parched now. I mean, you can remember what it was like. You, you know how good living water is, but your present experience is far from rivers of living water. That's not how you describe your life. You know what you're missing. That's the hard thing. Now what are the reasons for a dry soul? I mean there could be several. Maybe you've been drinking the wrong thing. Maybe you've been going to a polluted fountain instead of the fountain that you drank from to receive life. You're going to sin. You're going to other other idols for satisfaction and to sustain you. I mean, just in the physical world, there are everything you drink doesn't satisfy your thirst, as you know. You get a hot day, you're working outside, there's certain things you drink, it is not going to quench your thirst. Well, this is, this is true. There are those momentary pleasures, those things that we pursue instead of Christ for satisfaction, and they give no lasting joy, so that may be part of the reason your soul feels dry. You gotta, you gotta quit going there. You gotta go to Christ. There could be other reasons. There, maybe there's a sense of God's absence from your life. I don't mean that He is absent, but there's this perception that He's distant. It's like the sun it goes a cloud passes. Uh, it's not that the sun is farther away. It's not that we're benefiting any less from its from its uh, effects on our lives. It's just, it's just it's blocked. It, it's, there's this perceived separation. And, and maybe, maybe you feel like that. I mean, you, the psalmist talk about this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't hide your face from me. Because it seems like that at times. It's not, it's not reality, but it's a perception. Maybe the, the Puritans called this God's desertions. Those times of life when it seems God is distant. It doesn't necessarily mean it's because of some sin in your life. But there are those times. and So maybe that's why your soul feels dry. Maybe, it's, maybe you're just worn out. I mean, mental, physical, prolonged mental, physical fatigue can, can cause this. Just burnout. So there can be any number of reasons. But, the, but this is the thing. The dry soul still thirsts for God. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, we say, God, I'm thirsty for you. God will is pleased to bring us through that. There's also the thirst of the satisfied soul. You've tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good and you just crave more and more and more. He says, Paul, I want to know you. I want to know you more and more and more. And and so, so how, how do you how do you how do you grow that thirst for God? How do you how can we see the ideal of John seventy seven thirty eight become more and more of reality in in our lives in this church? There's three things. Now, just state them. One, ask God. There's be honest. Confess it. If, you, if your soul feels dry, confess that to God. I'm not thirsting for you as I should. Ask, seek, knock. So ask Him. 
Second, meditate on Scripture. Now, don't just read the Bible. Meditate on portions of Scripture, a paragraph, a verse, and let it soak into your soul. Don Whitney says to this point, he says, Some languishing souls are disciplined Bible readers. George Mueller warned, The simple reading of the Word of God can become information that only passes through our minds just as water passes through a pipe. So I just say, Bible reading is great, and, and, and large, you know, reading through the Bible, this is, God can use that, and, and so He will, but I'm saying there's a place for this slow absorption of the words, particularly when your soul is dry. Let it soak into your Word, and just slow down, and, and, and drink it in slowly, just like a, if, if, it's, if we're in a time of drought, and the, the land is just parched, and it's dry, and cracked, and you get some... You know, 15-minute flash flood. The water just rushes over the land. We, that, that, that we don't need that. We need that slow, slow soaking rain. And, and that's what meditation on the Word is. It lets us just soak into our heart. And then finally, I just say spend time with thirsty people. Spend time with thirsty people. This is why the church is so great. And you cannot forsake this assembly. You've got to be around people who are thirsting for God. I mean, it's not perfectly, but there's this hunger for God, thirst for Him. The assembly, Lord's Day assembly, finding people, spending time with brothers and sisters in Christ, community. If you're, if, you're, if you're dry, the last thing you need is to retreat and by yourself and just try to get your act together by yourself and find that on your own. You need it in the context of God's people. Read thirst-making writers, good books. Valley of Vision, those prayers, and Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, there are those books that just, they help. Listen to thirst-making preachers. There's great audio you can get online. And so, um, so let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as a church, that this picture of, of this promise of rivers of living water flowing from hearts, God, would be more and more true of my life, of of um, that, that it would show up in helping me as a pastor of the flock, as a husband to my wife, as a father to my children, as a brother in Christ to my friends here. Um, may this be true in my life. May it be true in the life of my dear friends here. And if there's anyone here today who who is not tasted, there is their soul thirst, but it's never been satisfied in Christ. I pray today maybe they would come and drink believe in Jesus Christ, and they would know these living waters. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.